Welcome back to the present stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. My guest today is Tori Sampson, who wrote the play This Land Was Made, which is currently running at the Vineyard Theatre through June 25th. Tori Sampson, welcome to the present stage. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So great that you're here. Um, so I saw This Land Was Made last night. I got out oh. of the theater literally 12 hours ago, so I'm excited <laughs> to sort of process that <laughs> with you. Um, and I went to the play uh, with a friend that I've been going to the theater with for quite a long time, and I realized in preparing for this interview that one of the first plays that we saw together was your play, Somebody's Travel, at the Yale School of Drama oh, in wow. 2016. Um, what a feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh exciting to know that um i had seen your work before and and i know that you did this play um i think that same school year um in, in its earliest iterations yeah. um yeah. and i think it's really sort of illustrative of the problem with asking playwrights why this play now that 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 this play has been in development so long um so i guess i want to start by asking you sort of why this play then when you wrote this play i guess starting almost a decade ago sort of what what led you to this story and uh to engage with this moment in history yeah i'm i that's a there's a lot of answers to that question uh one i love history uh, my mother was a history teacher um i love reading about history i was a sociologist before i was a playwright so for me a lot of um my interest is in understanding societies and social norms and um, and just like groups of people. Um, and so I love to, just, if, if somebody's willing to tell me a story about 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, I'm gonna listen. Um, so that's one. Two, I was in a library one day in um, my hometown and they had a display uh, section about the Black Panthers. And so I went in and grabbed a bunch of those books and just sat down one day and, and, and sifted through, through that collection. Um, and I think I was drawn to that because um, I'd grown up in Panther ideology, Black Panther ideology. My mom's um, aunt and uncle, so my great aunt and uncle were Black Panthers. They were part of the Boston chapter. Um, and so my mom was raised in Panther ideology and she in turn raised us um, with, with that same knowledge. And so I'd always been around the idea of the Panthers. I'd always, they've always been sort of ghosts in my um, upbringing. So very, very interested in, in the Black Panthers. And so I was reading um, those books and I came across one was specifically about um, Huey Newton in Oakland in 1967, and about uh, this this case of of the evening of the the morning in which he was in a um, a shootout with police officers, and he stood trial for for the murder of one of the police officers. And I was just fascinated by um, the way that this this uh, writer and I hate that I don't remember the name of this book. Um, but I just thought it was so beautifully written. It was obviously a piece of history, but it was written um, just just like it, it captured your attention and pulled you in like page by page. Like it was a mystery novel, basically. Um, and so uh, I was I was really drawn towards the end of uh, the book where they were speaking about what happened in the and the, um, and the courtroom in the court case uh, and how one of the officers, Officer Haynes, um, who survived, 
said that, you know, Huey really couldn't have shot his partner, Officer Fry, because he himself was shot and he was laying right next to him. And so there was this idea that there was this third person in the car that they couldn't account for that, you know, sort of came out of nowhere and, and committed this crime. And so I did a lot of research and just I'm like, had anybody ever written about this? Had they ever found the third person? And that person didn't exist. So as a dramatist, I was like, oh, my gosh, wow. oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, this is so great. Uh, and so then I wanted to create that third person and dramatize this uh, this situation. But I but I wanted to make sure that when I was doing that, um, I wanted to talk about the Black Panthers. I wanted to talk about Huey Newton. And I wanted to talk about this time period in the late 1960s. Um, and I wanted to do it from the perspective of the people. As a sociologist, I was always doing ethnographic work. And so that's just basically going into the community and observing and listening and not judging, um, but just reporting on what you see and what you observe and what you hear. And so I, it's for me, it's always, it's always about the people. And so I wanted to create a story to write a play that was about the people um, and write sort of the sociological, anthrop anthropological look at what it meant to be in Oakland at that point in time when the Black Panthers were just beginning. And so I, I love how the Black Panthers, you know, started basically in a room, you know, with two scholars, Huey Newton and, and Bobby Seale, you know, chopping it up and just talking about their ideologies and their dreams and their wishes and their hopes for the Black community, for their dreams and wishes and hopes of, for what it can mean in the future to be an American or be a Black American. And these two guys, um, you know, brain melding and having um, audacious uh, dreams created the Black Panthers and brought many people in Oakland into the Black Panthers and then brought many people in on the East, on the West Coast and then the East Coast and the Midwest. And then they moved across the seas. There, are people, there, were, there were chapters in Asia. I mean, they just sort of blew um, right through America and the world. And I just wanted to really capture what it was like um, sort of metaphorically to see how the Black Panthers um, walked into a space and sort of took it over. And so I wanted to start with this play in a bar with these normal, regular, you know, Black Americans just chilling, enjoying their lives. And then one day Huey Newton walks in and changes the course of their lives forever, the way that Black Panthers changed the course of American history forever. Um, and and I wanted it to be funny. I wanted it to be a comedy. So those were the things that um, inspired me. And I was like, okay, this is, this is the story I wanted to tell. And at that point in time, there was a lot of conversations about um, the fairness of, of the um, the judicial system and also the policing system to black and brown people. So this was back in 20, 2015, 2016, when I started writing this play. Um, and I was very interested in that conversation. I was interested in dramatizing that. I was interested in the narrative that was um, in the language that was going around at that point of like, I just want to get home. You know, I just want to protect myself in all of this language that was coming about protection, protection, protection from law enforcement. Um, and I was wondered if, if that language was coming out of the mouths of black people. Like, I just want to get home. I just want to protect myself. You know, I'm sure Trayvon Martin just wanted to get home, you know? And so he just wanted to protect himself, but, you know, he was also posthumously, you know, accused of his own murder. So for me, it was really about the language we use and how we wield language, depending on what side of the aisle or the argument we we land on. And if you switch the the language to an, to another person's mouth to another body, um, does it still does it still hold the same weight? That was a big question I have for myself um, when I started writing the play back then as the play developed in years past um, and I was still being able to work on the play, I became more interested um, 
I became a lot more interested in um, what it meant to be just just the ideas of blackness in this country, and um, I was became really more interested in the political nature of the play that was sort of underneath everything I was writing, but it wasn't conscious for me. And I wanted to be, I started to become more conscious of the political um, nature of the play, and so I I was um, really interested in pulling to the surface this idea of what it meant to be a black radical, what it meant to be a black moderate, what it meant to be a black conservative. Um, today and in, and then. Um, and so that became something very interesting for me to continue to uplift in the play as I as I knew that it was going to be produced. And I didn't want the same version of the play from 2015 to be the one that I presented in, um, in 2023. So um, so then I got to rewrite and, and um, because something another angle interests me. Um, there's so much rich response there to to, to dig into. Um, I guess I want to start by asking you, you talked about sort of the contemporary resonance with the the Black Lives Matter movement and Trayvon Martin. Um, And I just read uh, another play of yours, Cadillac Crew, which is set in 1963 and focuses on sort of the intersection between desegregation and and women's rights movements. Um, And at the end of that play, you really explicitly tie those characters and their story to the Black Lives Matter movement's founders, and you mentioned Trayvon Martin explicitly there. Um, did you ever consider uh, sort of making that tie explicit in this play, or, or sort of what what felt different to you about sort of the way that you ask audiences to sort of engage with their own moment? Mm, I never try to write the same play twice, so I, went, I didn't do that. Um, I think that that was like specific to that play and in the cast the casting called for something um theatrical in that sense um i think in this play i'm i'm asking different questions and i and i don't need i didn't need to have a um a conversation in the contemporary sense i think that like Sadly, a lot of the things that Huey Newton spoke in, in 1967 are very true today. Um, and so the speech that he gives in um, in the play, I think it really resonates. Um, and, you know, I yeah, I think that that, you know, I, I don't I don't always um, I, I don't set out to write the same play twice and I, I don't set out to be didactic in, in any in any sense of the word. I want to entertain people. I want people to to feel um welcomed and to feel like they laughed and they cried and they had a good time in the theater. And then they walk away with an opinion and and wanting to parse through some of the work that I've created. But at the end of the day, I'm a dramatist. And so I, I want it, I want to entertain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in, in thinking about sort of putting Huey Newton on stage as a character, um, as well as Gene McKinney, who was the other man that we know was in the car, um, what sort of, rules did you give yourself maybe in terms of how you were going to have them engage with the characters that you were creating or sort of how you would uh, sort of approach the responsibility of like bringing these characters from from history um, on stage? Uh, I just probably was like, you know, just be respectful, you know, <laughs> be respectful, but be truthful. 
Um, I wrote, I, I, I studied Huey. Um, I read a bunch about Huey. Um, I got to interview some people. So I was very, very, very blessed. And, um, I got to interview Ed Bullens before he passed away, um, who was a, a, a famous Black Panther who moved to Boston. Um, and he's also a playwright, Ed Bullens, and, and he moved to Boston um, for the later years of his life. And um, and I am from Boston. I got to interview him. And one of the things he told me in the interview was like, um, make sure you make make Huey funny. He was a funny motherfucker, you know. So it's <laughs> like I was like, okay, I got you. Um, I got to sit down with Kathleen Cleaver, um, who was one of the first uh, women members of the Black Panther Party. I think she was the first secretary um, and married to Eldridge Cleaver. Cleaver. Um, I got to sit down with her and talk to her. Um, she came to do a, a talk at Yale when I was there, and, and we got to chop it up a little bit. Um, and she gave me some insight on what it meant to be a woman in the Panthers at that time. Um, so I got some I got some opportunities to to speak to some people, and I did my own research. Um, and then I had the stories of the Panthers that my mom told me when I was a kid. And so those things helped me um, a great deal. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure that I humanized Huey Newton. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it was reading about him from a political level and a political standpoint, but then trying to dig deeper and figure out who he was as a person. So re really um, reading about his family, how many brothers did he have, who was his mom, and mentioning these people, mentioning his dreams outside of uh, the revolution, uh, but also just being true. Like that was that man was, you know, he was myopic. He had a, he had a, a goal and he wasn't going to let anybody stop him. Um, and he had a, he had a vision for what the future of, of America can be for black people um, and the inclusion of black people and to call ourselves black Americans and to improve the, the quality of life for black Americans. And so I definitely wanted to make sure that that was at the forefront, but just to make sure, also to make sure that people saw him as a human being, a funny motherfucker. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty much it was, you know, just being respectful, but being truthful. Speaking of his family, I know in your program note, you mentioned that members of his family came to a, a developmental uh, stage of the of the play. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that experience was like having them in the audience? And, and yeah, and I wasn't there the night that they came. Um, it was they, it, this was in Oakland um, and I was living in Minnesota at the time. I think I came for maybe closing night. Um, and uh, William Hodgson, who was the who was the um, artistic director of this uh, theater that was called Mbutu Theater. I think they changed the name. It might be called like Oakland Theater Project now or something, but he reached out to me and asked me for the play. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, it belongs to Oakland for sure. You guys can can do it. Came, to, I think it came to closing night and and, and he told me, it was like, I wish you were here like two nights ago, like uh, Huey's family came to see the show. They loved it. They told me to, to tell you, um, this is the best um, interpretation of Huey that they've ever seen. The most humanizing version wow. of Huey they've ever seen and to keep going. Um, so that was that was very very yeah yeah super nice. Obviously, I wish I was there in person to have heard that message, but um, but yeah. Speaking about Oakland, I think the play has such a strong sense of place and and time being sort of the fabric of the of the story you're telling. Um, can you talk more about the work that you did to sort of create the sort of rich detail of time and place um, for a moment that you didn't live in, but sort of brought to life um, so vividly? Um, so first reading, did a lot of reading um, of the time period, did a lot of studying of uh, language of the time period. Um, and then I went to Oakland three times in the in the construction of this play. 
to just walk around, sitting, sit in bars, talk to, you know, older folks who are from that time period, ask people, do you remember the Panthers? Were you around? Um, just like, you know, just moseying around Oakland and just feeling out the city, feeling it. And Oakland is one of those special places. It's kind of like the West Coast, New Orleans, where it's like you do feel like you're back in, like it's frozen in time in a little bit of peace. You know, like when you go there, you kind of do feel the 60s and 70s. It's a very yeah. retro, it's very retro, like Oakland, Berkeley. It's like very, it's, it's very retro um, vibes. Uh, and so, and a lot of, and there are a lot of people who are, have been there their entire lives. And and so it was great just to go there a couple of times and to, to speak to people and, and hang out. And I'd gotten some theater residencies um, during the time when I was writing this play. So that was also good because a couple of times I got to go out there for free um, mm-hmm. and, and work on some other plays and then, and then uh, do my research for this play at the same time. So that, that was great. Going back to the, the writing of the play, um, since you developed it while you were at Yale, I'm curious sort of what it's like to develop a play in an academic setting. Does that, is that freeing because you don't need to worry as much about finding sort of a first place for it to be shown or, or sort of what are, how did that change your process? Um, It's the only process I knew at the time. So I was very new to theater. Um, I saw my first play when I was 21. um, And then I was at Yale when I was 24. Four. So it was, it was, I'd never been in the theater before. I'd only written one play by the time I got to Yale. Um, and that was a play I applied to, to get into the school. So I didn't know any process. I'd never been in a rehearsal room. I'd never anything before. So that it was my introduction to theater process in general. So I had, I had nothing to compare it to, um, but it was great. I loved it. I didn't have to worry about money. I was going to put the play on, who was going to pay for it. I didn't have to worry about casting. Um, I didn't have to worry about if people were going to see it. All of that was taken care of for me. Um, and I don't know if I appreciated it at the time, but um, it was great. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I enjoyed myself a great deal. And, and we were taught at school to go big and to go wild and to be unencumbered because this was the only time in our lives in which we would be able to really explore our voices and our imaginations um, without huge repercussions and consequences to what that might look like. So we were taught to fail big, to take big swings and not to be afraid of failure. And, and, um, and so that was great too, just to know that like, all right, I'm going to try these things. And there's some things I tried in the play that I obviously, this was the second play I've ever written. So it was, you know, I was trying things that I didn't know were going to work. There's some huge theatrical moments in the in this play that just come from my imagination. And I was like, well, let's try it um, and, and figure it out. And I think that that process at, at Yale was super helpful because um, we did get to try things and, and mold them. And I was like, OK, this works. This doesn't work. And I took out some things that I thought were the foundation of the play. And then, you know, having meetings with um, Liz Diamond and Catherine Sheehy and Jeannie O'Hare after some like rehearsals and stuff, like figuring out like, oh, something that I thought was a temple of this play actually isn't. I can if I pull it out, this play still stands. Um, so just having good mentors, too. That was really great. Having good mentors in school who were willing to um pour into me during the original process um, and to encourage me uh, and affirm me. I think those are all things that you get in school that you probably don't always get in the real world. So 
um, I would say it was a pretty good process. Um, and now in sort of maturing this play for in, in the real world, I guess, um, you talked a little bit about some of the changes that you made to it. I wonder if you could share more about sort of what the last couple years of development have looked like for this play um, to bring it to sort of its current iteration, current form. Yeah, so in 20... I want to say it was 2018. In 2018, we did a workshop, a fully realized workshop production at the Vineyard uh, with Whitney White directing. Um, and for we did it, we worked on it for 10 days and Whitney put together this marvelous production of it. She swung big um, and had an entire set design and costumes and everything. And uh, people came out um, in droves to actually come see that, that, um, that version of the play. And I think that was, that was, um, not the very soon after uh, the theater called and, and wanted to commit to doing the play for the 2020 season. And then the pandemic hit. So we, you know, that's why we're doing it now, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, but so that was, that was really great to have that iteration of the play and to be able to learn from that workshop production and figure out what worked and what didn't work um, in another setting outside of Yale. Um, and so that was, that was, daunting for me because I was just fresh out of school um, and I and just wanting to see you know does this still hold up outside of like this um, you know why is these like a four block radius of like friends and families and colleagues you know in yeah. like in New Haven New Haven theater people who just sort of love everything we do so um, that was that was a great learning experience um, I love that and then We've since then in the last year have done maybe two workshop, uh, like three or four day workshops with different casts um, with this uh, with the director of this um, production, Taylor Reynolds. Um, and so that was great to also just to get to know Taylor, to uh, to figure out like uh, what our cast was going to look like and, and for Taylor to learn the play and for me to relearn the play and for me to make rewrites and um, to to. Um, get to know, um, I've been working with Sarah Stern since the beginning, so I guess since like 2018, but Jesse Alec, I, I hadn't worked with him before. And so to get to know him um, more. So that was great. It's been great. Um, but that's sort of what the the, the process on, on this, like knowing that it was going to be produced um, in this season, what that looked like. And what do you feel like the the biggest changes have been in, in, in this most recent process of oh, writing? Goodness. Um, sassy as Griot um, has been, I feel weird saying these things because people might not have seen the play and I don't want to like spoil it for them. Yeah. Um, but I'll just say Sassy's role has gotten a lot bigger. The ending of the play, the last three scenes of the play changed completely. Um, Jean's role changed. Those are probably the biggest changes. Um, speaking of Sassy, you talked earlier about your own ethnographic research going into this play. And I'm curious, since you have a main character in Sassy, who's also sort of the narrator and also is writing an ethnography of the world that she lives in throughout the play, what it's mm -hmm. like to write a character who's doing some of the same work that you were doing sort of looking back, but she's sort of doing that for her present world, sort of what it's like to write a writer? Um, that's a good question. Probably easier than, than, <laughs> um, than the struggles or the challenges of it, because I know, I know what that journey looks like. Um, 
I think what I tried to do is not make her me because she's not. So it's like I wasn't writing a, a version of myself. And so for Sassy, when we could tell when us, you know, I was talking earlier about politics and like Sassy being sort of, um, um, I don't know, agnostic about politics in the play is just not how I am and the world. And so I, I, that was important for me to like put distance from myself, you know, whereas like you have the moderates and the radical, the radicals and the conservatives. And then Sassy's kind of like, I just like want to smoke weed and like write this book and have fun and have sex and like get through life, you know? And, and I'm like, okay, if I can create that distance from my own reality from hers and I can write a character and not be trying to look inside myself and be like, what would I do? Um, I don't think I'm, I, I know for a fact I'm not comfortable writing myself into any of my plays at this stage in my life. And I don't know if I ever will be. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, the other question I had about her as a character is sort of early on in the play, she describes herself as someone that everyone finds delightful. And I mm -hmm. felt like there's a dynamic as the play continues that she sort of learns or empowers herself to sort of allow herself not to be sort of entertaining to people and delightful, but sort of step into like say the things she needs to say and and demand the things that she needs to demand. So I'm curious if you could talk more about that dynamic and sort of how you uh, thought about um, sort of that arc for her. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, my my conversation uh, with Kathleen Cleaver, I think that that was most um, imprinted on Sassy, what it meant to be a woman in that time period, what it meant to be a black a black woman, what it meant to be a panther, a black panther, a, a woman black panther at that time. And although Sassy isn't one, um, she's she is in relation to um, that life and the, and the men in her life at this moment. And so she's giving and giving and giving a lot and pouring into the people around her and it's draining her. She's drained. <laughs> All of that light that she starts with in the beginning of the play is draining, it's draining, it's draining. So she has like a moment of recognition, you know, where she's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like I want to preserve some of my light for myself. And I think that's a, that's like a, revolutionary act in itself so why everybody else is is dealing with the revolution in certain ways so sassy's having a revolution within her herself um i think that's that's important i hope you're enjoying this interview so far i wanted to tell you about a nonprofit that i co-founded and run called hear your song hear your song works with youth with serious illnesses and complex health needs both mental and physical health diagnoses to empower them to make their voices heard through songwriting. And much like this podcast, Hear Your Song is really focused on celebrating people's voices and people's stories. And it's all about making sure that kids who often don't have a lot of power and choice in their daily lives get as much creative autonomy in telling their story in the way they want to tell it through song. So if you would like to check out the work that we do at Hear Your Song, please visit hearyoursong.org, check out our YouTube channel, and dive into these incredible songs written by children and teens ages 6 to 18 about everything from loving pasta to what it's like to live with epilepsy. And if you're able to, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to support our work to help as many kids as possible make their voices heard through the arts and now back to the rest of this interview um in in connection to that and thinking about sort of how you you mentioned sort of writing 
people across the sort of political spectrum in relationship to the Black Panther Party. Um, I'd imagine your audiences as well have sort of complicated understandings and 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 uh, feelings about the Black Panther Party. So I'm curious, sort of what new understandings or clearer understandings do you hope that audiences take away about the Black Panther Party after seeing the play overall? Mm. Hmm. I guess two things. One, I when like when I set out to write about, I don't necessarily feel an obligation to make sure that the theater goers accept what my what the the mission I put for myself. So like where I would love to want it to humanize Huey Newton and and to add layers to the ideas of of what we were taught in school about who the Panthers were. I don't necessarily, I'm not really necessarily invested in if theater audiences take away what my intention was. I think a lot of it for me is like, well, what they take away is their business. Yeah. It's not really up to me to like make sure that that happens for them. Um, and I feel like if I hoped that it happened for them, then I would be like concerning myself with their business. Um, I think what I do, what I am invested in is that people um have a good time that they laugh and that they feel a range of emotions um and yeah I mean I guess if I truly truly hoped I would you know I, I would I hope that you guys understand the complexities of um this revolutionary movement these revolutionary people um and it makes you want to go read more about the Black Panthers and makes you want to understand um Huey Newton um, and the and and his comrades a bit more. Um, I, I guess if I hope that they they did something, but I learned long ago to not like put pin my hopes and dreams on like what yeah. what audiences take away from the work because it drive you crazy. Um, one thing that I noticed sort of across reading across your plays in this play in Cadillac Crew, if Pretty Hurts, um, you have characters who speak often in different contexts about skin tone discrimination and colorism. Um, and I'm curious, um, since that both is sort of raising issues that audiences are are in, in the world that audiences are experiencing and also um, sort of in embodying those characters, you're creating roles for actors um, with specific skin tone diversity, um, sort of how, how much you've thought about that deliberately throughout your career. Um, and, and sort of how that's manifested across your plays. Yeah, I do think about it. It's very deliberate. Um, I think a lot of times in theater, like especially as a Black playwright, we're expected to write Black worlds that are always in conversation with white worlds and the white gaze. And I'm not so always so interested in that. I think there's so much in, so much for us to parse through within our own communities and to create stories that are like, I feel like we're really interesting people without having to be in relationship to other cultures all the time on stage. And so I think one of the biggest conversations in Black culture is skin tone and colorism and um, and how we navigate the world. And I'm very interested in the social capital of skin tone and the social capital of beauty. I think that that's just, a, I'm just like actually interested in that and find it fascinating. I think was obviously beauty is a social construct. And so again, the sociologist in me is always sort of just like navigating that and trying to figure out like, um, 
I guess not even figure out. I'm just interested in it. It's an interesting conversation to me. I love talking about it. Um, I think it's a very complex conversation. I think that we could all write a million think pieces on it, a million plays, a million books about it. And then, and there's still not enough. It's always going to be evolving. Um, so for me in the, in, in, and this play and in particular, uh, Pretty Hurts, which is much more about the, um, the annexation of, of black women's beauty, like the, the entire play is about this. And in this play, it's a conversation. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm I'm interested in it. I think it's it's very ingrained in the Black American experience, um, and so I want to talk about it. Yeah, um, no, it's been really interesting to to sort of trace that throughout your works and sort of the different ways that it manifests. Um, I wanted to ask you. You you alluded to um, sort of the hyper re- hyper real or like unrealistic staging elements in the play. Um, and I, I noted at the beginning of your script, you have a staging note that says it should feel like a realistic play at the beginning and then the, the, the world of the play should physically fracture, fall away, and subject the plays and audiences to the outside dangers and this sense of disorientation as the play goes yeah. on. So I'd love to learn more about sort of how that concept evolved throughout your different sort of directorial collaborations and sort of ended up where you are now. Yeah. Um, with this play, you know, I, I, I wanted to write about a specific time in, in history, but I didn't actually want to write a quintessential period piece. And so that's always been a thing for me. It's just like, I really want to talk about this time period, but I don't want this to feel, um, I don't want it to feel like a spectacle in the sense where we're all just watching this thing happen and saying like, well, that was in 1967, you know, I wanted it to feel present. I wanted to, I wanted us to feel like we were engaging with this story. And I think that's where um, sort of the narrator comes in to bring us in and to make sure that we're all communicating um, and experiencing um, the the realities of this story, but also how it's affected her life and how it's affected our lives and the things that have changed and the things that have not changed. And so that for me is um, one of the, you know, one of the the temples for me of like the important things about um, about the story. Um, yeah, wait, hold on. Now I'm like, I think I lost track of what your original question was. Sort of how, uh, how the evolution of the Yes, of the yes. Sort of physical so fracture wanted... of the world took place mm-hmm. on stage. Yeah. So, for one of the things for me is like fully starting off with this realized world when you first meet these people in this bar and they're lively and they're jumping and the conversations popping and it's going all over the place and like you just feel all the love and the energy of it and then at some point in time when this play you you know the physical manifestation of the revolution walks through this door and it threatens their that real that reality that you saw at the top of the play. And so I really want the set to start to feel like their their reality was crumbling is, you know, scene by scene, even if they weren't realizing it. And just to have like that metaphor on stage, um, I felt like would be super helpful um and fun and pretty um and gorgeous and stuff. And I think mm-hmm. Wilson did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Um and then in looking at the script and sort of across your plays, uh, I would sort of describe the physical layout as sort of like semi-verse play. Um, and I'm curious in in thinking about how you lay out your text on the page, how much in this rehearsal process specifically, how much that impacts the way that the actors and director engage with with the text as they work through it. 
Yeah, I'm I'm pretty specific about rhythm. I hear everything in a rhythm and I hear everything in a symphony. Um, and so when we're in rehearsals, we're in previews, I don't watch the play, I just listen to it. So I, I'm sitting somewhere where I, I my view is obstructed no. and I'm just sort of listening to the beat, to the rhythm. Um, I'm very, I'm very specific about that. If I, if, if, if there's one thing as a playwright that I'm sort of like, it's the rhythm, <laughs> it's the rhythm. Um, and so the, the directors will know that the actors will know, um, about, about the rhythm. And I try very hard on the page to help them out with that. Um, and, and then I will do a, um, you know, a, a version of it if they need me to like <laughs> act it out <laughs> you know, just give them a sense of the rhythm. Um, but, but rhythm is super important to me. I, I, I like energy and I like, um, language to be front footed and not back footed. I don't, this play doesn't ask at ever for the, uh, the players on stage to be restful or to be on their, their heels. It's always asking them to be on their toes. Um, and the language is doing that and the way that the way that it's situated, the words are situated on the page. I hope are helpful for acknowledging that for the actors. Can you talk more about that experience of listening to the play from an from an obstructed view mm. experience? Sort of like what is that uh what is that um experience like in sort of divorcing yourself from the like physical life of the production as, as it sort of enters that stage of the process? Yeah, I mean, for, I'm in charge of the words. There are a lot of people in charge of other things. So, I, I don't want to overstep my my bounds here. So I need the words to be precise. I need the the rhythm to be precise. And I trust that everybody else is doing their job, you know, to make sure that that whatever it is, the lights, the costumes, the direction, sound, that they're they're sort of they have the intention of watching the shows from that perspective, that that point of view. And so if if something doesn't ring right in my ear, I just need to, I need to know. So I'll just sit there and I'll underline and I'll look at the word. This is the right word. Should I use another word? And maybe sometimes if I'm watching the play, I might be distracted by something else that's happening. And I don't need to be distracted by that. I don't need to be, because it's so beautiful. Everybody's work is so gorgeous. And so I might just be looking at Deshaun's beautiful costumes and then I'll miss like a word or something. I'll miss a line and I don't want to do that. So for me, it's just, it's like, you know, I can't multitask. <laughs> I yeah. need to just listen. I just need to hear the words. Um, and so that's 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 how I experience the the play and in, in previews and um yeah. That's really a fascinating. So I haven't really heard players describe their role in the rehearsal process in that way. That's really cool to hear that way of engaging with it throughout and sort of maintaining your sort of ownership of the text in that like sort of really specific oral way um yeah. i think my that's also a good transition into my last question which is when i uh walked into the vineyard last night i sort of had like a, a physical reaction to seeing the set because it's so sort of meticulously rendered and i hadn't mm -hmm. seen a set that detailed or re like hyper realistic on that stage before and i had oh. sort of like gasped when i walked into the into the space and yeah. i'm curious for someone who spent so long researching that world, building that world in on the page and in your head, sort of what the experience is like then of for the first time when you do when you do come out from behind your obstructed view and sort of step into into that space, what it's like to sort of be 
within in that world that you've both created and and sort of uh tried to bring back through history yeah i mean i think it's beautiful like when i worked when i walked into the um the theater the first the first day of tech that i was there i was like whoa that's like, it's like really really gorgeous um so i get to appreciate it um in in all of its glory and all its beauty when the show isn't happening you know so like i i'm staring at the set constantly during tech you know when you know actors are you know being lit um and nobody's saying words like yeah then i can like sit there and appreciate everybody's work i can appreciate the lights i can appreciate the costumes the set the sound, like all of it. Um, it's only when it's only when we sit down and the show's about to start that I need to not be in the house. I never sit in the house for the show. So, um, but other than that, I just, I, I, I love it. And I think we waited so long. I was actually was the first day of tech when um, two of the actors, uh, Elijah Martinez and Leland Fowler came up to me and they were like, can you believe this is happening? Because they were part of the original production at Yale and Sean. Um, so the three of them um, have been with the play, you know, since, since 2015 and have always come back every time I've asked them to come back and do a workshop. Um, and so the three of them being in this production means so much to me. And they were just like, we've been working on this play for so long. I can't believe like, this is it. I can't believe this is the set. This is like, we're realizing this thing that we've done so many times in different places. So um, it's a, it's a blessing for sure. It's a, it's a blessing. I don't take it for granted. I think one of the things about being a playwright is the reality of being a playwright is we write new plays, you know? So the actors, the designers, the directors, like they can go on and do another new play. They can go on and do a classic, you know, they can do regional theater and still like continue to work, you know, in a couple months in the next year with playwrights. We never know when's our next opportunity to get back in this position, to be back in a theater, seeing all our words on stage, seeing somebody put their blood, sweat and tears into creating a set that we, that we imagined in our heads. Like, that is for us is so special because you never know. Some people never get that opportunity. And then maybe some people get it once, you know, you, you just, you can't take it for granted. You just can't as a playwright. We, 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 it's all up in the air for us. It's all up in the air. And so I think walking into the vineyard every day, seeing my name, seeing my poster outside, um, opening the door and then letting me in because I'm supposed to be there, you know, all <laughs> these things, they're not, they're not small things. They're not small. I don't take it for granted. Seeing people come into the theater and pay money to come see something that I that I dreamed up in my head and take time out of their days. And this is how I want to spend two hours is listening to this play. I don't take that for granted at all. I, I'm, I feel so blessed by these opportunities and very blessed by the vineyard and everybody who's given me an opportunity to be a working playwright. Um, so yeah, so when I see the set, when I see the costumes and I see everybody's hard work, um, it just really warms my heart. And it just reminds me of like, I'm living, um, I'm living actually my dream right now. And I'm living a dream because there's, it's just, I'm in a small number of, of living playwrights who get to see their work realized on stage. And then also New York, you know, world premiere in New York, it's, it's even harder to get that stage. So, um, it's all it's all a blessing and I'm I'm really, really grateful for everybody involved uh, in the process. They've all been magnificent. 
Well, I think that's the perfect place to end. And so congratulations on, on bringing this so play much. all the way from 2015 and all the way from 1967 to, to this moment. Um, and thank you so much for joining me on the present stage. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming to see the show as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Present Stage Conversations with Theater Writers. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review and follow us on Instagram at The Present Stage. We have new episodes streaming every Friday wherever you listen to podcasts, so please let your friends know to check us out. And if you want to learn more about the impact that Hear Your Song has on youth living with serious illnesses, expressing themselves through songwriting, please visit hearyoursong.org.